I'm excited to tell you about our presenting sponsor, Hunt Club, the leading tech-enabled executive search firm. For Rick and me at Sater Grove, one of our obsessions is identifying and cultivating talent. Selfishly, it's one of the reasons we teach Art of Investing. The class allows us to get an unfair early glimpse at some of the best talent out there. But we all know the talent universe is vast and competitive, so beyond simply relying on our own networks, we've partnered with Hunt Club to assist us and our portfolio companies with all things search. Through its proprietary software and approach, Hunt Club is able to harness the networks of literally thousands of leading professionals to make warm introductions and personal referrals during a search. In our minds, gone are the days of relying on only one recruiter's Rolodex or on simply who's top of mind that week. By leveraging Hunt Club's network and technology, we've been able to unlock much more powerful connections, and we've been able to consistently find the right people for the right roles. So if you're looking to truly harness the power of networks with the ideal solution for all of your talent needs, visit huntclub.com AOI to learn more and get connected with our good friends over at Hunt Club. Hello, and welcome to The Art of Investing. I'm Paul Buser. And I'm Rick Berman. We're your hosts. Art of Investing is a series of discussions devoted to exploring the joys of compounding in all its forms. In each episode, our guests will be some of the world's most compelling people from across the vast range of human achievement. This show is brought to you by Pine Grove Studios in collaboration with Colossus. The hosts of the show, Rick Berman and Paul Buser, are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Seda Grove Holdings and co-CEOs of Seda Grove Management Company. All opinions expressed by any of Rick, Paul, or their podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of either Seda Grove Holdings or Seda Grove Management Company. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Seda Grove Holdings or clients of Seda Grove Management Company may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Our guest today is our dear friend, David Senra, an absolute force of nature who is taking the world by storm with his podcast, Founders. Art of Investing has a legacy in welcoming world-renowned historians to our classroom, and I'm not sure there's anyone on the planet who has immersed themselves more in the history of human achievement than David Senra. In class today, we enjoy access to the full spectrum of David's learnings from his decade-long study of history's greatest entrepreneurs, artists, athletes, and leaders. We think Founders Podcast offers the equivalent case study education of a Harvard MBA. The library David's built reflects a range of study that's just completely boundless, from Alexander the Great to Catherine Graham to Alexander Graham Bell, from Warren to Jimmy Buffett, and from Jay Gold all the way to Jay-Z. When you leave class today, you'll have gained an understanding of why virtually all of the greats in history devote themselves to the study of those that came before them what the key inputs are that reside behind the success of so many of the remarkable people that David has studied. And of course, a slew of stories and other learnings David shares from his fascinating work and passed along in such a passionate and captivating way that has become a hallmark of David's teaching style. Also, a special thanks to Patty Brady and our team at the Notre Dame Institute for Global Investing. We're just coming off an incredible week on campus, including our first ever Art of Investing reunion, as well as special classes with Mitch Rails, David Glenn, and Sam Hinkey. Thank you, NDIGI, for all of your support with those events. With that, we hope you enjoy our class with the extraordinary David Senra. Come on. Woo. David, welcome. Let's begin with a quote from The Revolt of the Masses by 
Jose Ortega Gasset. This actually showed up in a recent episode of David's on Ettore Bugatti, which is episode 316. By the way, that's going to be the first of many shameless plugs on the Founders Podcast. <laughs> and this is what he says. A human life by its very nature has to be devoted to something or other, to a glorious or humble enterprise, an illustrious or obscure destiny. This is a strange but inexorable condition of things. So David, I guess the question is in your study of many great figures throughout time, what have you come to understand about our need to find something to devote ourselves toward? I think the best way to think about this is I just recently become friends with Rick and Paul and I knew their work. We have mutual friends and it was fascinating. They're like, hey, we think you should do the class on art of investing because I know literally nothing about investing. You'll be perfect for this class then. <laughs> the response to me was, yeah, but if you think about everybody's an investor, whether they do that in finance or not, you're investing your time and your energy into something. There's a friend of ours, Patrick Shaughnessy, who you might know from the Best Like the Best podcast. He's also the founder of Positive Sum. And his whole thing is trying to enable other people and help their life's work. And his definition of life's work, I actually want to read to you because I think it's the best definition of life's work that I've ever come across. And it's, he says, it's a lifelong quest to build something for others that expresses who you are. And so one thing I would say that I notice is all the people I've read, 317 biographies, I've been doing this for seven years, well over 100,000 pages, tens of thousands of hours, right? And as you see the arc of an entire human life, you realize that one, they build a life that is suited to their authentic self. And so to do that, you have to know who you are. And that is usually a multi-decade long journey. At 22 or 21, you don't know that. You think you do. I remember being 21, 22. You'll realize how different, when you look back when you're 30, 40, 50, 60, what you thought you were at 20, vastly different. And so one, I think is they all do this deep introspective journey to figure out who they are and then to find work that matches who they are. But I think that definition is important because what Jose is talking about and what Patrick's talking about, it's not about you. Your work is in the service of other people. So it's finding a way that expresses who you are authentically, right? With a service that can benefit the lives of other human beings. And every single case, the best description of this that I repeat over and over again, the best description of what a business is, and it doesn't matter if you own the business or you're working in a business, all a business is, is an idea that makes someone else's life better. It will make your life better if the more you serve other people, but the focus is on other people. One of my favorite quotes from the history of entrepreneurship comes from Henry Ford. He says, money comes naturally as a result of service. The people that reach the top of the profession, they don't talk about, I'm doing this for me. They happen to be obsessed with what they're doing, but they're chasing after whatever it is that they create in the world is for the benefit of other people. That's why people wrote books about them usually many years after they died. But I think that's the first thing you have to cover is finding out who you are, discovering who you are as a person. Everybody's born with some innate interest, curiosity, whatever it is. And then how can I use what I'm naturally interested in in the service of as many people as possible? We're going to spend a lot of time just on this topic because I think for most of us, we begin work whenever that is in our lives without having thought a lot about the nature of work and without really thinking deeply about our motivations for trying to find that thing that we want to do. A lot of times you have a lot of other people telling you what you should do next and then do after that. And that can work, but much more helpful, I think, to step back and ask these more existential questions. And David, before we come back into this life's work subject, I wanted to pull from a tweet. Are, are they still called tweets or X's? I don't know what they're called now. From Paul Graham. We're going to talk about Paul Graham co-founder of Y Combinator, probably quite a bit. Paul, if you're listening, we'd love to have you in class at some point too. <laughs> this was an old tweet from 2016. 
Paul had said, instead of pushing my kids, I try to help them find the interests that will pull them. History suggests pull has more power. And somebody responded, do you know any books on the topic? And Paul responded, biographies of people who have done great things. So I'm just curious, David, as somebody who's literally devoted his life to locking himself in a closet and reading books, what is it about that that is so profound and helpful for figuring out our own lives? Okay, so let me pause that question because I think there's something I need to say before that. So we were talking about, okay, we're going to do this class. I'm like, what do you want me to talk about? And I get all kinds of requests. They're like, come and give me your top 10 list. I'm not dumbing this down for anybody. You cannot spend this amount of time doing this. I'm like, here's the 10 list of traits everybody does. That's useless. And they framed it perfectly. Like, what do you wish that you could have learned when you were 22? And that ties into what I would tell you is read biographies. If I only had one piece of advice, it's just, it doesn't matter who you're interested in. Just pick somebody you're interested in. Think about how crazy this is. The people that we study on Founders Podcast, they were so good at their job that somebody wrote a book about their life. That is the smallest percentage of people that have ever existed, right? Inevitably, when you pick up these books, the people that live life so remarkable, somebody wrote a book about their life, will then in their biography talk about the people that inspired them and that they had read biographies of. So what the advice that Paul is giving to his son is advice that he had followed, that he just started reading biographies of great people, absorbing the ideas. A list of ideas is next to useless. The important part is what Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett picked up is you don't want to just memorize ideas. You want to tie the people that developed those ideas to their actual life. How did they arrive at that? Why did they arrive at that? You see the whole arc of the human life. and so. The first thing I would say is what I wish I did. And dude, you go back and actually check my Amazon account. It's embarrassing what I was reading when I was 21 or 22. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was in business school. It's like seven habits of highly effective people. I don't want to make fun of those things. It's like those are blog posts in disguise of books. A biography is something that you spend in some cases, like the Bugatti book, right? That you referenced at the opening. That Bugatti book, we had this conversation at dinner last night. Highly likely that no one knows anybody that's read that book because it was first published in 1962. It's only available in French. I happened to find a copy. I think now, first of all, they're sold on Amazon. If you would have bought it last week, I think the cheapest one was like 400 bucks. Not many people other than me are spending $400 on a book, right? But there's ideas in that entire life story that's written by his daughter, right? And she tells the story. My father was like this because his father was like this. And this is the experience we had. And you see how it ties all together, Right. What I wish somebody had been able to whisper in my ear when I was 22 is ditch the business books, pick up biographies, and then all you do is books are the original links. They take you from one idea to another idea or one person to another person. So let me give you an example of this. Everybody knows 95% of the entrepreneurs that I study on the podcast, I didn't know existed before I started this crazy project, right? And so what did I do? I picked the people that everybody knows. Everybody in here probably has an Apple product. Everybody knows who Steve Jobs is, right? And so what happens is I actually mapped this out the other day. I figured out how many different episodes have I done on Steve Jobs based on every book I read on him. And then what I did is I went and made a study of all the people that he mentions being influenced by. 39. There's 39 episodes, and now even more because it was probably a year ago when he did this. 39 episodes in the Founders Archive of either on Steve Jobs or people that he inspired or that inspired him. The reason I'm wearing this shirt, this is Steve Jobs' hero. His name's Edmund Land. He's the founder of Polaroid. Steve Jobs met him when he was 20 years old. Edwin Land was seven years old. Steve Jobs said visiting Edwin Land was visiting a shrine. Right. And so what happens is, oh, I'm interested in Steve. He's dying. He's working with Walter Isaacson on this biography. Right. He knows he's dying. He knows he's got less than a year left. And so he's putting down his legacy on paper and he kept talking about his hero named Edwin Land. I'm like, who was Edwin Land? I don't even know who this is. And then I start doing the search and I'm like, wait, he was talking about this guy when he was in his 20s. And now he's talking about him when he's in his 50s and he's dying. I need to go research this guy. So then what I do, I find every single book on Edwin Land. And then what does he talk about? He talks about Alexander Graham Bell. 
He talks about Faraday. He talks about Thomas Edison. Then you just start realizing the ideas that we think. There are people that you guys look up to, and you're like, man, that guy is so smart. That woman is so smart. And look at that idea that they had. They're a genius. I promise you, they found that idea from somebody else. Let me give you an example. I would watch all the old product demos of Steve Jobs, and on every single product demo, he'd have this picture, and it'd be the intersection of art and technology, right? So it shows street signs. So like, oh, that's fascinating. That's a great idea. And he's like, I wanted to build a company at the intersection of art and technology, art and science, whatever it was. I was like, that's a great idea. Then you go read Edwin Land. That is verbatim a quote from Edwin Land. A 20-year-old Steve Jobs, hey, this guy's figured out some stuff. He's worth $400 million. He built the last technical monopoly in American history. He literally invented the industry. He created the industry that he made products in, right? Maybe that guy probably figured out something. He worked on it from the time he was 19 until he was 70. What is the chance somebody as smart as Edwin Land, right, to be an example, worked on something for 60 years and they didn't discover an idea that you can use in your work? The chance of the probability of that is zero. It is zero. What Charlie Munger said, it's not just the last 200 years of entrepreneurship history. Humans have been writing on the best ideas for 5,000 years. The founder of Shopify, Toby Luque, has this great quote, right, why he reads so many biographies. He says, biographies are the closest thing that you'll find in real life in cheat codes. You can download into your brain the best learnings of a 50-year career in a few hours. Why wouldn't you do this? Start finding the people that you're interested in, read their biographies, and keep doing this over and over and over again. There's a reason why some of the richest people in the world, I'm not saying do this just for monetary gain, do it because it nourishes your soul. But I had the opportunity to go to Charlie Munger's house, right? I got invited to dinner at Charlie Munger's house. I saw his bookshelf. I read biographies for a living. And this guy had biographies that I had never even heard of. This guy was so obsessed with biographies, he made his own. He had compiled biographies of unpublished works by people that he put into binders. Same thing with Warren Buffett, hundreds of biographies. I had the opportunity to have lunch with Sam Zell before he passed away, right? One of the greatest investors and entrepreneurs to ever live. This guy was 81 years old, right? He just passed away. One of the conversations, we had a two-hour lunch, just me, him, and one other person. And he's like, I'm going to be doing deals till I die, right? So I'm like, oh man, this is crazy. How that happened is, this is also the magic of podcasting and just putting your ideas out onto the internet. I made a podcast about Sam Zell's autobiography. He listened to the podcast. He's like, I love this. Can I meet this guy? And then I get a message. Sam Zell wants to have lunch with you. Would you do that? I was like, yeah, I think I'll clear my calendar for that. Thank you very much. So I go to this lunch. I'm like, this is incredible. And I'm like, I'm going to pull out every random, weird, esoteric reference of, I'm not going to cover the Steve Jobs or the Phil Knights or the well-known, the Warren Buffett. none of that. I'm going to pull out all these other rare references. It was like, Neo in the Matrix. He batted everything away. I threw him. He's like, oh yeah, not only did he knew the person, knew the company, knew the revenue of the company, had read the book, in some cases was friends with the guy when the guy was alive. And so I get back from that lunch and I told my wife, I'm like, that is the clearest illustration that I am on the right path. She's like, why? I go, the guy sold a company for $38 billion to Blackstone. I'm like, you don't sell a company for $38 billion and then learn all this stuff. This guy had learned everything since he was in his early 20s, exactly your age, this age group, in his early 20s, and he kept reading it. At lunch, he was telling me about, he's like, just closed a $300 million deal yesterday. He was super excited. He was telling me about books he was reading. I don't think he knew he was going to be dead in six months, right? Four months from that time. He was still doing deals. He was still reading books. He was still listening to podcasts. This relentless curiosity is one thing that they all share. It's just figure out what you're intensely interested in and try to do that. This is, I think, either a Charlie Munger advice or advice from Paul Graham, or I think they both say similar things, but in different words, is find what you're intensely interested in and then do that for work. Just going back to your broader point on what would you do if you're 21 or 22, 
What do you do if you're 22? Most people are going to go into a typical job. But dinner last night, we talk about do one thing relentlessly. So who are the people that can focus on one thing and remove the noise? What do you do as a 22-year-old where maybe you're not building your own thing yet? Maybe you're going to work somewhere else. But how do you start to use some of these ideas in your life? Or maybe it is a job or maybe it is a company you build. Have you guys seen Oppenheimer? Did anybody go see Oppenheimer? So it was fascinating. I just read this book called The Nolan Variations. It's on Christopher Nolan. And what's fascinating is it goes through chronologically and it covers how he was thinking about every single project that he did, every single film he did. And he knew he wanted to be a filmmaker. He's one of the rarest exceptions. Most people don't know what their path is early in life. In fact, it's incredibly rare. And for some reason, I've read a bunch of biographies of filmmakers, James Cameron, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. They all knew when they were like seven, which is kind of spooky. It took me 32 years to find my path, right? And what was fascinating is that he would talk about, I want to be a filmmaker. I don't know how to be a filmmaker. So he was actually his first film. He actually did that on the weekends when he had a full-time job, which again, what would I want to know when I was 22 is somebody pull me aside, like accustom yourself to handling a large volume of work because you get out into the world. I thought everybody was hardworking when I was in college, right? Or even high school. My God, I have so much competition and you get out, nobody works hard. It's like 4%. They have not accustomed themselves to a large volume of work. And that is an edge in and of itself. But what Christopher Nolan said something fascinating is he treats what you'll notice with a lot of these biographies. They treat the entire world like a classroom. It's not just what you learn in college. In fact, 1% of what you learned in Notre Dame, you're actually going to use in your life. Most of it is going to be from your own experience, conversations you have with friends, books you read, stuff that pops up in your job. Most of it is just like using, understanding that the world is a classroom and every single thing you experience can be utilized in work, even if you don't understand yet. And so he could be at a museum in France and look at a piece of art and it spawns something, an idea on a movie that he is working on. So what he would tell you is, listen, reading all these books, having those conversations, going to college, that is useless if you don't have a foundation of work to put it on, right? So discovering whatever it is that you want to do, and in many cases, your first job, second job, might be your 15th job to actually find what you want to do. Use your actual work, what you're doing during the day as a foundation, and then everything you learn, just kind of filter it through and be like, hey, is there an idea behind this? Or can I treat this as a metaphor and actually utilize it? The idea that you could be looking at a picture at the Louvre or however you pronounce that museum, and then that gives him an idea for inception that he's going to do 15 years later is kind of a wild thing. But you see this over and over again where, I think we talked about this yesterday. There's actually a quote that I wrote down that I thought of this morning, but it's one of the best ideas that I've come across. It says, the best jobs are neither decreed nor degreed. They are creative expressions of continuous learners in free markets. It's by this investor named Naval Ravikant. And I love this idea, like the best jobs are creative expressions of continuous learners in free markets. The whole point is, is like at any age, you should just be relentlessly curious and then learning as much as possible all the time, right? And the reason this came up is Steve Jobs talks about this in his commencement address, which you can see on YouTube. I think 40 million people have watched it. And I think he gave this commencement address at Stanford in 2005. And he talked about the fact he grew up in a lower middle class California family. He was adopted. His parents didn't have a lot of money. They saved almost all of their net worth, went to paying for his college. And instead of making it easier and going to state school, he chose this really expensive liberal arts school called Reed College. And he's there for a year and he's like, man, I don't even like the classes I'm taking, but I'm spending all my family's money. Let me drop out of the required classes and then let me drop into what I'm actually genuinely curious about. And Reed College, Adina Reed College is actually very progressive. And he's like, Steve, you can stay on campus, put on some shoes and some deodorant, please. And just take any classes you want. You can just hang out here for free. And I think Steve had to like sleep on the floor or whatever. And so he drops into a calligraphy class. He saw these beautiful posters all over campus. He's like, how do you even make something so visually beautiful? 
I would like to learn how to do that. So he starts taking that class. He's 19. 10 years later, so in his late 20s, he's working on what will become the first Macintosh. And it's the first computer with a graphical user interface that contains all these beautiful fonts. And that was directly inspired by a class he had taken 10 years from now. The important point that he says in the commencement address is you can't connect the dots looking forward. There's so many things you're gonna be learning now that when you're 35, 45, 50, you're like, oh wow, you connect the dots looking backwards, just like he did. He's like, I'm not taking a clicker class so I can use this in my work. He's like, I'm following my genuine intellectual curiosity. I just wanna learn this new skill. And then you have no idea as you keep doing that, I think you started the class with a line I said, what's well, the line, the joy of all things compounding or something like that? Learning is the same thing. It just like interests, just like time, just like relationships. It compounds. So you spend as much time doing that now and you're going to have a set of skills 10, 15, 20 years from now that other people that didn't do that same activity don't have. Let me give you an example of my own work, right? I told you it took me 32 years to find my path. I couldn't have been in college. When I was in college, I thought I was going to law school. That was my goal as a law school. Podcasts didn't even exist when I was in college. So there's no way I could have predicted this was going to be my life's work, turn into an incredible business that gave me a world-class network and all these crazy opportunities, right? But now I think about it as I was just literally sitting in a room by myself when only 3,000 people were listening to founders. And I was just like pursuing my genuine intellectual curiosity. I was like, these books are pretty amazing. There's no possible way that I'm the only person in the world that's interested in this. If I sit down once a week and just say, hey, I spent 40 hours reading this book. Here's an hour of some cool shit. Do you think this is cool shit? I think this is cool shit. Let's do this together, right? And then you fast forward seven years. Let's say you wanted to start a business to compete with me today. I'm so far ahead, the game is already over. No one will ever catch me. And I work on it seven days a week. You would have to say, okay, I'm going to catch David, right? He's already done 317. I'm at zero. There's no way you're ever going to catch me. I'm so far ahead. And it's because of this compounding nature. A good example of how even your skill set compounds. Listen to episode 314, which is we're going to quote heavily from. This is the Paul Graham one, right? And then go listen to episode five. Episode, this guy sucks. He published this? This is embarrassing. I didn't know it was embarrassing then because I didn't know how bad I was. But now... I actually just listened to episode one on Elon. I thought it was beautiful. I thought you did a good job. <laughs> but it's not compared. So the point being is I wasn't doing this with some kind of plan. Oh, seven years from now, I'm going to be sitting in Notre Dame. They invited me to teach at Harvard in two weeks. That's absurd. I could have never even gotten to Harvard. That's absurd. That was a direct result of me following my own advice that I wish I had at 22. Is Man, I have four main interests. Reading, which I've read compulsively for my whole life. Entrepreneurship, podcasts, and history. Well, what was Founders? It's literally, if you had a Venn diagram of those four things, founder sits right in the middle. I didn't do it because I thought it was going to be a job. I didn't get paid to do it for years. I did it for two years paying to do it. Literally paying to do it. People are like, oh, would you do this for free? Yeah, I did it for free for years. And then I decided, I read, I'm going to hopefully indoctrinate you guys. Go to paulgram.com, go through his essays, pick the ones that you think are interesting. I read one that changed my life. It's how to do what you love. And you see that it changed my life because I was doing the podcast starting in 2016. My upload schedule, which is public, you can see, it, was very intermittent. Did it whenever I had a chance. I was working. I was married. I stay unmarried. I had a kid. Now I have two kids. I had like support everybody. And I was just doing this thing because, oh, this is kind of fun, whatever. And then I was always doing things just for money or just because I had to do it, right? And I'm like, man, but I really like podcasting. Is this even a business? Like, could I get paid to do this? Kind of weird. And then I remember my entire household is asleep. My daughter's asleep. My wife's asleep. I'm literally reading, sitting up with my laptop in bed, right? It's completely dark. And I'm rereading Paul Graham's essay, How to Do What You Love. And I snapped. And I'm like, man, I just had this relentless self-belief that I was like, I know I love podcasting. I don't know if I could 
turn it into a business. I wasn't making any money on it at that point. I believe if I stop everything I'm doing, if I'm willing to dedicate 100% of my time to this, if I'm willing to work seven days a week on this, I'm willing to bet that I can figure out how to turn this into a business, right? And you see this, me snap, because you can go back and you see, hey, he's just uploading randomly. And then 2018, I think it might've been August, 2018. It's every week to now. I have not missed one single week. I completely snapped. I was like, I'm willing to do everything else. I stopped doing everything else. And lucky, I was always a relentless saver because I didn't come from a family with money. And so I was always scared of being homeless. And I just saved like 80% of all the money I made, just let it sit there. And so I had a fairly large buffer to do this. And so what happens is from 2018 all the way to 2020, it took me two years before the podcast made enough money just to cover my living expenses. So people are like, oh, would you do this for free? No, you didn't understand. From 2018 to 2020, I was literally paying to do it. Every month I'm looking at my savings account. Oh, shit. I got a wife and a kid. Oh, I'll drive Uber. I'll get a job. I'll do this at night. I was like, there's no way. And then now it's like an unbelievable business. It's going to make my unborn grandchildren rich. But I didn't start. We got to start with the idea of a lot of people when I was your age, I did only thing for money. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be an investor because I'm going to be rich. And you don't realize that like the people that get to the top of the profession don't start out with money as the goal. Money is the byproduct of service to other people. Yeah, I do think it's important to just underscore this point accustom yourself to being able to handle a large volume of work. It seems so obvious, but I think conventional wisdom would say how hard you work might be more aligned with just what you're passionate about. And if you're not working hard at something, it might just be a reflection of the fact that you're just not that interested in it and that that's okay. And at least as I've observed through founders, is there anybody that you've studied that has not accustomed themselves to this heavy workload that over time probably experiences several pivots and evolves quite a bit to the point that when they finally find what it is their life's work they want to do, they've already created that muscle. That muscle's there. And I think at a very basic level, it's something all of us can do today is just decide, I think about the Schwarzenegger podcast, a guy who first observed that the average high quality bodybuilder of the day was doing two and a half hours of working out. And so it was pretty straightforward. Arnold decided that he was going to start by doing double that. Then he realized when he was going home for lunch that nobody else was doing anything except eating lunch. So he would work in another hour of crunches. And then he's waking up in the middle of the night doing a third two and a half hour workout. But I think this concept that hard work is a habit and a discipline, and it is a prerequisite to doing something great. You don't need to wait until you find that thing this is going to make me sound so stupid. I had no conception because no one in my family ever even graduated high school, much less college. My parents never mentioned the word college to me. I knew I was going to go to college because I got to be a lawyer. I watched TV when I was young. I was like, okay, we don't have any money. Who's got money? And then on TV, doctors and lawyers are like, all right, so there you go. The rich people, I don't know anything. So I was like, I can't stand inside of blood. So I got to be a lawyer. So how do I be a lawyer? Then you look it up. Oh, you got to go to college first. You got to get an undergrad and then go to law school. It's like, okay, I can do that. And then I told them last night, I didn't know people just went to college. I worked full-time. I started working full-time in high school. But then I worked full-time in college, and I had a college room. I was like, what do you do? He's just like, go to class and drink a lot and then play beer pong. I'm like, oh, this is completely different. I was like, imagine you now, fast forward, you put him and me in a head-to-head competition. I'm going to eat that dude alive. But this is not unique to me. Edwin Land, go back to the shirt I have, right? It's not necessarily work for money. It's work for what you're interested in. So Edwin Land has one of the unique designations of being the only people to ever drop out of Harvard twice. And so why? He's like, I have two main goals in life. I want to be the world's greatest novelist and the world's greatest scientist. He said that when he's like 14, 
that's insane. And so he's like, I need to pick a scientific field that has not been explored by other people that I can make a genuine novel invention in. And so he decided to get obsessed with light, right? And what does he do? First, he finds books when he's 14 or whatever. He starts reading a textbook on physical optics and light. He reads it every night like people read the Bible. He goes to sleep with it underneath his pillow. Then he goes, okay, I've read every single thing I could find. I need to find what's the best school. Okay, the best school is Harvard. Let me go there. He doesn't go to class at Harvard. He goes to the library and reads every single book in the library on light. Not four of them, not five of them, every single one. Then he reads it and he's like, there's nothing else here for me. Drops out, goes to New York to start doing experiments, right? Goes to New York City Public Library, the beautiful one that is still there today, right? Reads every single book in the library on light. Starts breaking in. Think about this. Most people break into things, right? Steal things. He breaks into, I think it might be NYU or Cornell, I can't remember. It's probably NYU. Breaks into NYU because he's like, well, they have a lab. I don't have a lab. I'm reading all these books. I can't run experiments. I don't have any money. He breaks into the lab at night, not to steal anything, just so he can run experiments. That is hard work. He's accustomed himself to hard work. He was 19 when he was doing that. By the time he's 30 years old, he said he achieved everything he wanted in life except success. All of his businesses, he dies with more, I think he's got the third most patents out of any American ever by the time he dies, right? The first 20 years of his life is just one failure after another, one failed business after another, and then he invents the instant photography, which then he works on until he dies. But one thing I would say is if you listen to founders or just in general, your own education, I don't believe in siloing anything, right? So going back to Patrick O'Shaughnessy, he asked me one time, he's like, hey, David, if you were only known for one episode, what would it be? And I was like, I can't answer that question because I feel all I'm doing is having one giant conversation on the history of entrepreneurship. It just happens to be 400 hours long now. Hopefully I do this till I'm 90 and it's 4,000 hours, right? I think the same thing about the art of investing, the class that you guys are doing now. And so I would tie in a bunch of what we're talking about to people you guys are going to meet in the next few weeks, some of which happen to be good friends of mine. And so this is not a novel observation for me. After reading a couple hundred biographies that, oh, these people have seemed to have accustomed themselves to a large volume of work, being able to handle that, maybe that's a good idea. You see it in different personality types, different industries, different points in time, different geographical locations that should put red flashing lights. Hey, this is a good idea. These people didn't know each other and they, they arrived at similar conclusions. And so there's this X, another piece of homework, if I can give it to you, I hated homework, but I would go to YouTube and watch, there's a famous investor named Bill Gurley, he was at Benchmark, he's a venture capitalist, or it was, I don't even know what he's doing now. But he has what I feel is the greatest talk on YouTube for anybody wanting to do anything interesting or difficult in life. It's called Running Down a Dream, How to Survive and Thrive in a Career You Love. And he profiles five people that went to great lengths to run down a dream. One of those people, I think he's coming in person, right? I think he's coming in person, is going to actually fly here from California just to be with you guys. The more successful people you meet, the more successful people you interact with, whether you get to talk to them in person, on the phone, on Zoom, you go to their houses, look at their bookshelves. It's filled with biographies. They all do this. Bill being the same thing. So he had realized by reading a bunch of biographies and getting to know these people, the amount of work that people put in to run down a dream. Nobody's going to do this. This is what I meant. On a macro level, at least when I was trying to, I thought, I'm going to get out to the real world. It's going to be so difficult. And you get out and you're like, this is a bunch of adult babies. Most of them, after they get out of school, stop learning. I think another reason that hard work is so valuable is precedes doing great work is because in a way, if you think about the compound interest equation, which we'll geek out on throughout the semester, but to simplify it, it's really a function of two things, time and then some sort of a growth variable. And hard work essentially is one input to accelerating the growth variable. You are much more likely to find that thing that you are curious about and passionate about 
if you are turning over rocks faster and working harder than others, it doesn't guarantee that you will find it at any given point, but it does improve your odds and it does accelerate your path of compounding in some form, whether that's a certain kind of knowledge or expertise. Once you find your life's work, it won't feel like work. To me, it's I'm playing. I found work that felt like playing. I work all the time and I work none of the time. And that's another consistent theme that you're going to see with people that find their life's work. Something I say on the podcast all the time that history doesn't repeat, human nature does. And the best thing that ever happened to me is if you read so many biographies, you're able to step outside of yourself and realize that I am not unique. There has been my same personality type has existed a thousand years before I was born. After I'm dead and gone, there'll be another same personality type a thousand years from now. We talked about this at dinner or maybe, oh no, we were in the class yesterday where I did this in-person meetup in Miami for a bunch of people listening to the podcast. And one of the people that came gave me a book and it was the biography of Mike Tyson. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'll read about it because he came from like really poor, had a crazy experience. What a crazy job that he got into. And so I started researching because I might do it in the next few weeks. And he said something that's fascinating where he said that when he was 19, he goes and he starts reading every single thing he can find about any, he wanted to be like a great conqueror, which is psychotic. <laughs> he does Napoleon, Charlemagne, Caesar, Alexander the Great. And he says something great that he goes, the more I read, you read as far back as you can to people that did great things and read in chronological order to get to you. And what you realize is this is just me in funny clothes. And he's like, oh, I feel that way. I thought it was unique to me because he's 19 or 20 when he's doing this. And he realized, oh, they all felt that way. It's just another me. And therefore, when you see incredibly intelligent and driven people struggle, Edwin Land, I could read 10,000 books. I'll never be as smart as Edwin Land. Edwin Land is a genius. I am not that. And yet you read his biographies, and I think I've read five of them, and you see this brilliant man, this brilliant, driven, hardworking person go through decades of decades of struggle and not quit. And I think the response is, wow, that's inspiring. This guy didn't give up. He's way smarter than me. His struggle is, is inevitable. I have to just find my way to work through it. We see, I always say this, Maxim, the public praises people for what they practice in private. The public praises people for what they practice in private. We see the result. He built a technical monopoly, right? He built $400 million fortune for his family. This is like the 70s, so it's probably multiple billions today, right? He's on the cover of magazines wins all these awards. He gets all these honorary degrees. We see that. We didn't see that he was practicing and struggling in private for decade after decade after decade until he figured it out. And so that's for me where like when my podcast was not successful, no one could tell me to stop doing it. No one could convince me that it wasn't going to be successful because, well, yeah, struggle is part of it. This is the struggle part. If I step back and like the biography of David is being written right now. Okay. When my kids read this, they're like, oh, this is the part where David was struggling. And this is the part where you don't dare quit. And then what if I would have quit in 2018, 2019, 2020? Would have never met you guys. Wouldn't have anything that has happened to me in the last two years would have never happened. That part is in every book. It's going to be in your life story. It's going to be any life story if anybody does something great. And I'm not saying that I've done anything great. I think maybe 30 years from now, I could say that I did something great. But I think that's the most important part. They're just another you. David, I know all of our students did their pre-reading. One of the very small PDFs we shared was a piece by John Gardner and our really good friend, longtime mentor, Will Thorndike, shared this with us years ago. And John had written many books, but this was a write-up of a short talk he gave. And there's just so many life lessons in here that we find valuable that apply to art of investing. But one that comes up after what you just mentioned is the importance of optimism and toughness. And so John says, for renewal, Tough-minded optimism is best. 
the future is not shaped by people who don't really believe in the future. Men and women of vitality have always been prepared to bet their futures, even their lives, on ventures of unknown outcome. If they had all looked before they leaped, we would still be crouched in caves, sketching animal pictures on the wall. I think it just applies to everything you're talking about. If Edwin Land hadn't had optimism about the future and tough-mindedness, we wouldn't have these cameras. We wouldn't have all these inventions. We wouldn't have Steve Jobs. There's something beautiful. I'm not like religious, but there's something beautiful about this campus where like he was pointing out to me, you just walking down this random building and there's a chapel you can pray. And the idea that repetition is incredibly important is something that all the world's religions have figured out. And yet in today's society, if you look at all the apps that we're addicted to, for most of human history, we'd identify a handful of ideas and then we repeat them together, right? Religions, we gather together and we repeat the same stuff. There's a community element to it. And now it's like, no, we spend five seconds on something new and then we swipe to another screen and then five seconds on something new and then you swipe to another screen. And I think there's something really important about repeating things. And you see this with the greatest entrepreneurs and investors too. They just repeat the same thing so much that inside these companies, like inside Amazon, Jeff Bezos repeated the same things over and over again for decades. And they call them Jeffisms. You just made me think of this. In Edwin Land's company, inside Polarity, they were called Landisms. You just mentioned the term optimism. One of Edwin Land's Landisms was that optimism is a moral duty. It's one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard in my life. Optimism is a moral duty. I do think the fact that he really he was optimistic when he had no business to be. Business after business is failing. He's like, well, I'll just figure it out. I'll work my way through, get more funding. I'll do whatever I have to do, but I'm not going to give up. That's how you get jobs, investment opportunities, relationships, businesses. Everything flows from that, things that you cannot predict. Let me give you an example of why you don't have to be a genius to do this. One of the things that I sent to Rick and Paul was one of my favorite quotes. And it came from this book that was published in 1965. This is not a new idea. And he talks about this guy named David Ogilvy, which I had no idea who David Ogilvy was. I knew who Warren Buffett was. So what I do? I read every single book on Warren Buffett. I read 60 years or 50 years of his shareholder letters. I'm reading Warren Buffett shareholder letters. And I'm like, why does Warren Buffett keep bringing up David Ogilvy? Why does he call this guy a genius? I'm like, all right, well, Warren Buffett thinks this guy's a genius. I have to go read every single book about him. So then I realized why he thinks he's a genius, because he was a genius, and he became one of my personal heroes. But he talked about he's building out his advertising agency. He's staffing his business with a bunch of young college-age students. And he notices the large variance in their ability to work hard. And so he talks about the people that rise through the ranks of his company or any of the other advertising agencies on Madison Avenue in its heyday all share the same traits. And they were like this. So if you don't mind, let me just read this to you. It's a long paragraph. And he says, first, you must be ambitious. Set yourself to becoming the best informed man in the agency on the account to which you are assigned. That's the same exact idea that Bill Gurley mentioned 50 years later in a talk on UT. It's the same idea said by another genius, right? So set yourself to becoming the best informed man on the agency on the account to which you are assigned. This is something no one's going to do. I can read this to you. A thousand people can read this paragraph. That makes sense. Five will do it. This is what he means by that. If, for example, it's a gasoline account, one of his biggest companies was Shell at the time. If it's a gasoline account, read textbooks on the chemistry, geology, and distribution of petroleum products. Right there, that's eliminated 90%. People just will not do that. Read all the trade journals in the field. That goes the other 5%. Read all the research reports and marketing plans that your agency has ever written on the product. Spend Saturday mornings in the service stations pumping gasoline. There goes the other 99. They're gone. They're already gone. Pumping gasoline and talking to motors. Visit your client's refineries and research laboratories. Study the advertising of his competitors. At the end of the second year, isn't that weird? 
Same thing. Bill Gurley said you could do this in two years. David Ogilvie, 50 years earlier, saying it only takes two years to do this. This is not actually that hard. At the end of your second year, you will know more about gasoline than your boss, and then you will be ready to succeed him. Most of the young people in agencies are too lazy to do this kind of homework, and this is the biggest slur that you could ever say, in my opinion, to somebody. They remain permanently superficial. He just gave you a blueprint, and he's like, I could tell you this, but here's the thing. Learning is not memorizing information. Learning is changing your behavior. So many people read these things, these ideas, and then they don't change their behavior. So then you didn't learn. Then you're just wasting time. Go play video games. Go do something else. Literally do something else. Because if you're going to read these books, you're going to listen to these podcasts, you're going to go to college and not apply what you're learning, then you didn't learn. This reminds me of episode 272 with the late, great Kobe Bryant. And in there, and if ever you listen to any talks that Kobe gave, he was also just continually offering a blueprint to anybody who wanted to listen on how to master your craft. And you highlight this in the episode, really, it comes down to four things. Master the fundamentals, improve your weaknesses, study the greats, and concentrate. Those four themes have probably hit on those a dozen times already, just in the first hour or so. Talk about just the things that get in the way of compounding. Let's say you have these frameworks, you have an intent. Why do so many lives go astray? Why do so many people not accomplish what they set out to do? Because I don't think they truly want to do it. When you guys had this idea, right? And you started it. Did they have to call you up in the morning and be like, hey, Rick and Paul, I think you guys should do this? Where did it come from? It comes from within. To answer your question, it's part of human nature. Most humans quit at everything. This is what I meant. Once you get out into the real world, you're like, oh, this is going to be easy. You might have to struggle to figure out what you want to do, but there is not a lot of competition because one, most people can't focus, right? So that's the main. If there is one theme, they're literally like, you could distill down every single thing I've learned from this weird seven-year odyssey that I've been on is focus. The people that I read about, so I stick my head in the book, right? I have one-sided conversations with some of the most successful and accomplished people that have ever lived, and they have insane levels of focus. Then I pop my head out and I look around at what people are talking about, what they're doing on social media. I'm like, no one can focus on anything. I think we talked about this dinner last night before. Constantly people are like, hey, David, I love what you do. Have you ever thought about doing this? Doing X, doing Y, whatever it is. I'm like, so let me get this straight. You love my podcast so much that you want me to stop doing it to focus on something else that's not that that you love. But they do it innately. This is natural to them because people don't understand. Like, I've brainwashed myself to only focus on this. I have two things on my desk. One is a post-it note that Paul quoted earlier. It says, do one thing relentlessly. And the other is a frame tweet of Andrew Huberman saying that your podcast is uniquely superb. He's got one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And he's like, you're really, really good at this. And I was like, oh, I'm going to frame that because that's motivating because like his audience size is like way bigger than mine. And this guy has been doing it for way less time. So obviously I can learn a lot from him. The reason I have those two things on it is you have one of the people that are in the same craft as you telling you you're one of the best in the world at it. You don't have to jump around. You found the thing. And then the other post-it note, which is on the left, is do one thing relentlessly. Kobe Bryant wasn't trying to be the best basketball player to ever lived and get a black belt in jiu-jitsu or learn how to play the violin or start a, a venture capital firm. He's like, I'm just going to focus all my efforts on this one thing because it's hard enough to succeed in life. And it's almost impossible to succeed at five or six different things at one time. Just like the Arnold Schwarzenegger example earlier, they're working out two and a half hours a day. I'm working out seven. And over time, the gap between us just gets larger and larger and larger to the point. It doesn't matter what work they do, they can't catch up. And so that's the important thing is if you're constantly distracted by everything else you're doing, you have to think incredibly deeply about what you're doing. Most people don't do that. But you will see if they get to the top of the profession, they are incredibly focused. That's a non-negotiable. I think one of the other reasons why it is so hard to focus is that when you are focused on something relentlessly, the rest of the world or a good portion of the rest of the world thinks you're clinically insane. It's only in hindsight that the dots connect. 
Kobe Bryant, the story of Kobe Bryant, for most of his life preceding him being a professional basketball player, was people telling him he was absolutely nuts for applying himself in such a focused way only to basketball. I bet every person in this room and anybody listening has something that they do that they love that is just feels really niche, even to yourself. And I've seen all your resumes and these quirky things that are interests. And if you just thought about, okay, pick one of those things, and that's the thing I'm going to night and day apply myself toward, you are likely going to get a lot of people throughout at least those early stages of development toward mastery telling you, this is insane. You'll never be able to make a career out of this. You're wasting your time. You're passing up other, obviously more great opportunities. And so one of the things that's so powerful to me about those two things you have on your desk in Huberman is that reinforcement, finding somebody who actually has done directionally sort of is where you want to be or is in the process of mastering that same craft. When you get that positive reinforcement, you have to hold on to it because apart from yourself, there's just not going to be a lot of voices, particularly in those early years, encouraging you along. The voices you'll get will more likely be sort of trying to get you back toward the more common path that most of us sort of tread on, finding those voices and then holding on to them, maybe through the development of mantras or friendships or whatever. I think that's just a really cool part of your own story. My guess is when Huberman said that, it wasn't obvious yet to everybody else how good you were at what you did. This class is brought to you by our friends at Sumus, the revolutionary health benefit solution that gives employees unheard of access to top medical specialists across the full range of medical specialties and employers a proven way to significantly lower their enterprise-level healthcare spend. It's a transformation of access made possible by Sumus's unique marketplace model that in as little as a day connects employees across the country with over 5,100 of the best specialists at the nation's top medical centers through an elegant, simple, medium-agnostic platform and a human relationship-based user experience. The quality of Sumus's solution is unrivaled. They are currently delivering 7 to 10 times higher employee engagement, a 9.4 out of 10 employee satisfaction rate, and all while driving meaningful and measurable healthcare cost savings for the companies they serve. Now, we are delighted Sumus customers as are many companies in our ecosystem, all of which are having amazing results, both in better health outcomes and material cost savings. So if you're looking for a benefit that provides huge value to both your employees and your bottom line, visit sumusglobal.com. That's S-U-M-M-U-S global.com. I do think to give something that's more like prescriptive for you guys, all the stuff we're talking about, no one's coming to save you. You got to figure it out on your own. It doesn't work if it doesn't come from me internally. But I do think if you guys do read Paul Graham's essay, How to Do Great Work, this spawned to mind when you were speaking just now. He gives you a blueprint in that essay that you can actually apply that I wish I had when I was in college. It would have saved me a lot of headache if I could actually apply it. Who knows? College age students are not known for the propensity to listen to the wisdom of their elders, right? People smarter and older than you are going to tell you something. You're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then 15 years from now, like, God, I wish I would have listened. I want to give you just a few highlights from that essay that I think are very helpful. So one, he starts out with what I just said. When it comes to figuring out what to work on, you're on your own. That is actually a gift and a curse. It's a curse because it's incredibly difficult. Out of the billions of people on the planet, maybe a few hundred thousand will ever actually figure this out and actually get to work that they love and that's actually their life's work. It's incredibly hard to do. But two, going back to the Kobe example, when he was 12 years old, he's on the bus. His dad played in the NBA and then started doing cocaine and doing all kinds of dumb things and gets kicked out of the NBA. Interesting to note, 
because I was a huge NBA fan before I got obsessed with my podcast, and I can't watch anything but work on the podcast. But Kobe Bryant's dad was signed, I think, by the Philadelphia 76ers. And at the time, he had the largest contract. It was $300,000 a year. And the people in the NBA, this is it. This is the peak. No one's ever going to make more than $300,000 a year. And so I think it talks to the compounding nature of if something's working, the numbers always get way bigger. Steph Curry doesn't even tie his shoes for $300,000, for God's sake. What was fascinating is Kobe was learning from the mistakes of his father, right? His dad was cheating on his mom, got arrested, led the cops on a high-speed chase, gets arrested with a woman that's not Kobe's mom and a bunch of cocaine in the car. This is not behavior that you want from your dad, right? And so his dad has to play basketball in Italy. And so they're on a bus and 12-year-old Kobe Bryant's like, I'm going to make it to the NBA and I'm not going to fall out like you losers. A 12-year-old, that is not coming from other people. There's nobody else saying, Kobe, you should talk to your dad that way, or you should have this kind of relentless self-belief. He's like, I will do whatever to not wind up like you. This can't be my life is a very powerful motivator. And I think you see that with Kobe. So when it comes to figuring out what to work on, you're on your own. You see that over and over again. No one can give you the answer. Now, there is a way I'm going to give you Paul Graham's prescription on how to find it. In fact, this is going to be the last thing I said from this essay. I'll tell you to first. And this is the advice he gives at the end of the essay. What's fascinating? Can I just do another side real quick? I make a podcast on this entire essay. I got one or two messages. So glad you made an episode about this. I went to go read this essay and it was too long. And I wrote back, you're not going to make it. If you can't spend an hour reading an essay, you're not going to accomplish anything good in life. I don't know what to tell you. That's pathetic. Please unfollow me and do not listen to my podcast. I'm offended. Your lack of dedication disgusts me. That's really how I felt. So this is the advice from Paul Graham. At each stage, do whatever seems most interesting and gives you the best options for the future. I call this approach staying upwind. This is how most people who've done great work seem to have done it. That is excellent advice. So if I was 22, if I was in college, whisper this in my ear. This is now Paul Graham talking to the 22-year-old version of myself who would not have listened to him. I have to make that clear. Highly likely you're not going to apply anything hearing today. Maybe you'll apply it for 10 years from now. We're trying to play the real long game. Paul goes, if you ask an oracle a secret to doing great work, and the oracle replied with a single word, my bet would be on curiosity. This is why it has to come internally. Kobe Bryant was obsessed with basketball. He thought it was this unbelievably, infinitely complex and like simple game that he could just play different variations. And he was obsessed with it forever. Another way of saying he was deeply curious about the game of basketball. Curiosity is the best guide. That's Paul Graham. If I wrote that, I'd say curiosity is the only guide. And it's not the curiosity of the person sitting next to you. It's not the curiosity of your parents. It's not the curiosity of your teachers. You have to ignore these people. They want you to do what they want you to do. It's irrelevant. You only have your life. You have to choose what you want to do. I remember one of my best friends. Let me give you an example. I'm going to tell you what he said to me because it sounds disrespectful, but it's really not because I've known him for like 25 years or whatever. I told him I'm going to make a podcast on the books I read. This is before I'd ever recorded one single episode. And he said, you're not being ambitious enough. This is dismissive. And now I talk to him and he's like, why don't you answer my calls anymore? I was like, dude, I'm busy. I'm being pulled in a million different directions. The business has exploded. Everything's going on. He's like, you really did this. I was like, yeah, you told me not to. This is what, imagine if you're poking your head up and you're seeking what the outside world says. The outside world, one of my oldest friends, somebody who I trust their judgment and your advice just told me don't do it. And I was like, I was so dismissive. I was like, there's just no way. This is coming from inside. I have to do this. So curiosity is the best guide. I would say curiosity is the only guide. Your curiosity never lies and it knows more than you do about what's worth paying attention to. That's a fascinating sentence. You can't tell. Here's the problem that you're in, that Edwin Land went through, that I went through, Rick and Paul's story, they just went through. You can't tell what most kinds of work are like except by doing them. This is not something that you can predict or plan in advance. I thought I was going to be an attorney. <laughs> There would be no conversation here because I would have jumped out of that window if I was going to have an attorney. I have all of my attorney friends. 
all of them have dropped like flies. They're still alive, but they've left the industry. There is literally, let's say I have half a dozen friends that became attorneys. I know one that stuck with it. You may have to work at something for years before you know how much you like it or how good you are at it. Or even worst case scenario, you might work at something for a decade, think it's what you're supposed to be doing, right? And not realizing a decade in that it's not meant for you. A lot of people go through that. One sign, this is the important thing. There's something that everybody in here is good at that other people think is difficult. And you're like, why do other people think it's difficult, right? We're like, again, somebody asked me one day, actually the same guy that told me not to do a business around reading. He's like, how many books do you think people read? And I was like, I don't know, at least one a month. He's like, you are way off. You don't understand how nobody reads. And I was like, no, they do. They read at least a book a month. Anybody can read a book a month. And we looked at the numbers and zero is the biggest category. And then one a year. I'm like, how do you read a book a year? You must read in the zero category. What are you doing there? He says, one sign that you're suited for some kind of work is when you like even the parts that other people find tedious. I don't find reading tedious. Like you guys, I'm happy I'm here. I'd rather be reading. <laughs> no offense. I am an introvert. I don't like being in groups of people. That's why I do monologue podcasts by myself. I know there's a ton of people listening, but I don't see it. I'm just by myself. I'm drawn to that. Some people will find that boring. I find it exhilarating. This is maybe the most important line from the entire essay for me because I like maxims. I like bumper sticker sayings because that's the only stuff I can remember. If you're interested, you're not astray. If you're interested in something, if your parents tell you don't do it, or if your best friend outside of a restaurant tells you you're not being ambitious enough, you can't listen to them. You listen to your interests and what you're genuinely curious about. I think that is as close to prescription as you can get. And then from there, you have to figure out what is that yourself. I love that. And I think if we were just start to frame these sort of some hierarchy of motivations, we already talked about money will only get you so far. Ambition clearly can play a role, but we're zeroing in on this concept of curiosity. Again, it reminds me of something that Gardner said in Road to Self-Renewal. He said, but we have to bet on people and I place my bets more often on high motivation than on any other quality except judgment. There is not perfection of techniques that will substitute for the lift of spirit and heightened performance that comes from strong motivation. The world is moved by highly motivated people, by enthusiasts, by men and women who want something very much or believe very much. I'm not talking about anything as narrow as ambition. After all, ambition eventually wears out and probably should. But you can keep your zest until the day you die. If I may offer you a simple maxim, be interested. Everyone wants to be interesting, but the vitalizing thing is to be interested. Keep a sense of curiosity, discover new things, care, risk failure, reach out. And so I think this is just so important to sort of start to frame this conversation because these are the things that are either going to fuel us or leave us empty along the journey. I'm curious, David, while we're on the topic of curiosity, one question that has come up every semester we've taught this class numerous times is, can curiosity be cultivated? Can curiosity be habituated? Or is it something that you just have to kind of fall into or you have innately? What have you learned from your time studying others? The answer to that question is, I don't know. I've always just been infinitely curious. My mom passed away a few years ago from cancer at a young age. And one of the last things she told me before she died was, and she had known, I had just started doing the podcast and she had known that like, since you could read, you never stop reading. She says, I'd walk into rooms and read every single thing that was hanging on the wall. I would read the back of cereal boxes when I was four or five at breakfast because there's nothing else to read. We didn't have a lot of money. She would take me to the bookstore and the bookstores are the best because they let you sit there and you don't have to buy the book. They'll let you like read it. I can't answer that question because I was born with this innate curiosity that I don't know. Are other people like that? I would hope everybody has something. I highly believe 
highly suspect everybody has something they're innately curious about. I don't know if it can be cultivated. I think if you're not innately curious, is it possible to get to college and not be curious about anything? I don't know. I wonder if it's more, we all do have these curiosities. The question is, do we follow them or are they stifled for whatever reason? Coming back to this concept that there could be external forces that are going to shun the curiosities when they appear in your life. And so maybe more than anything, it is coming back to that place of what am I just naturally drawn to? What corner am I just dying to look around? Let's take the second part of what that, because we have no idea. Let's say curiosity is innate. I think the more important part is don't let anybody else get you off what you're truly curious about. Do not pay attention to the opinions of other people. Don't let them convince you. One of the things I ran into Paul at the coffee shop this morning I was thinking about was I read this book called Dynasties, which profiles 15 of the great family dynasties. I did a podcast just on four of them, which was the Rothschilds, Rockefellers, Morgans, and Toyota family. And I showed him a highlight that I was thinking about this morning, where it's everybody around in the early days of the American automobile industry, which is taking place not very far from here. The epicenter was in Detroit, Michigan. They were usually in the early 20s. They were predisposed to be interested in mechanics, every single one of them that founded the automobile companies, three of which still exist to this day. And yet the highlight I shared with Paul at the coffee shop was the response to their weird curiosity of other people around them. And in that book was they were innately curious in this. They were interested in trying to build a car, which didn't exist, right? And everybody around them said that they were wasting their time. And now you fast forward, and if you take the economic impact of the automobile industry on US GDP, it's 8 or 10% of everything. Let's say it's 10% of our entire economy, and you had these idiots 120 years ago. It's like, you should be interested in that. Just make a faster horse. The big thing was when you go back and read people's opinions in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, and this is hilarious. They're like, we don't need cars. We just need better ways to get rid of the horse crap and the horse urine on city streets. And so a job, if you were living in 1880, New York City, you could apply for a job where your job is to go around every day, literally picking up horse droppings. Imagine being that person. Living in that environment, why do we need to improve this? This is silly. We'll just have more crews. We'll remove this horse droppings faster. It's insane. This is why you can't listen to other people. Most other people don't know what they're talking about. This propensity to ignore the opinions of other people, right, and not be influenced by it is excessively rare. It's probably zero in all of life, but in what to work on, it's probably like 10 or 15%. There's nothing anybody could say to me to this day to tell me I shouldn't be working on the podcast. I won't even let that in. It could sit there and come into me and I would just laugh. And so I think that skill can be developed. Curiosity is probably innate. And then you develop the skill and thick skin. And essentially what's happening is over time you learn, you do the work necessary to trust your own judgment. And so that's when I was dismissive of my friend is I trust my judgment more than I trust his. And this is my life. And so I'm just going to go with this. I love the anecdote that you mentioned about your passion for NBA basketball and how you just don't have time for that anymore. The Latin root for decision is to cut away from, as in an incision. When you commit to something, you are cutting away all your other possibilities, all your other options. I think this is another thing that gets in the way of focus is the other side of focus is you have to be willing to part with a lot of other things in your life. And maybe eventually we'll come back to how that can become problematic in terms of building a holistic, good life, keeping together a healthy family life and other sort of categories that may be valuable to folks beyond just maybe an entrepreneurial journey. But I do think it's important to step back and acknowledge that that is the cost of focus. The cost of focus is the extraction that's required. Some of those things you can just put off as fluff and fat that should be trimmed. There's other things, interests that you have that if you are going to really hone your craft and be world-class, it's just not clear that there's any other way other than to part. 
I don't want to engage anything where I have to remain permanently superficial. And so the NBA season is really long. The playoffs are really long. Keeping up with it and actually understanding what's going on to a level that I would be comfortable with is having a part-time job. I'm not going to do that. So the only sport I watch now is MMA, UFC, because I buy one pay-per-view a month. I spend a few hours watching it, and then I'm caught up on everything I need to know. I'm not permanently superficial. And I also think there's this weird comparison between fighters and entrepreneurs. There's a lot of traits that they actually share. Athletes in general, tennis players too. That's interesting. I need to make something clear though. If you listen to founders or if you read a lot of biographies, what you're going to be surprised is that people that do great things that are idolized for achievement usually are cautionary tales. I have to be very clear about this. Their desire for professional success comes at the cost of literally every single thing else in their life. Their health, if being married and being a good spouse is important to you, listen to founders and then do the opposite of everything they do. You're going to see divorces. You're going to see like just atrocious behavior. There are three people I wanted to talk about to make sure we still have time. Out of the 300 people I've studied, right? There's only really three people that I consider have quote unquote mastered life. And since this is technically the art of investing class, I think the first one to start with and a book recommendation for you guys, there's a guy named Ed Thorpe. And he wrote this autobiography called A Man for All Markets. He's still alive. Tim Ferriss did this excellent podcast interview with him that's on YouTube. I would listen to the whole thing. He's, he's a legit genius. Go look at him on YouTube and tell me how old you think that guy is. I've done this a bunch. They're like, oh, he's probably like 65, 70. No, he's 90 when he gave that interview. And Ed Thorpe is episode 222 of Founders. And the parentheses on his episode is my personal blueprint for life. I know enough about myself now through experience that if I did not have family, my eyes would open, I'd work until my eyes closed. I'm just that precise. The problem is then you destroy everything else. And so I look at Ed Thorpe, the reason I say, hey, I need guardrails on myself. Ed Thorpe mastered life. What did he do? He built businesses that he was intellectually curious about. He didn't work all the time, but you could still build wealth, more wealth than you could ever spend. Once he had more wealth than he ever spent, he stopped trading time for money if that time away for more money he's never going to spend because it was important to him to be a good father. Most of the people that I read biographies about are terrible fathers and they tell you that. He was a good husband. He was married to his wife Vivian for like 50 years. She winds up passing away from cancer just right before he wrote this autobiography that I highly recommend reading. He followed his genuine intellectual curiosity and had fun. He built the world's first wearable computer with Claude Shannon, the father of information theory, because they thought it'd be fun. They tried to figure out if they could get an edge in roulette. He was the one that invented the counting card system for blackjack because he just thought it was an intellectual mathematic problem. And then instead of keeping it and making millions and millions of dollars for it, he wrote a book about how to do it and made millions and millions of competitors for himself. And that book sold millions of copies because he thought it'd be a fun thing to do. He took care of his health. He starts lifting weights in college when no one lifted weights. He was, this had to be 70 years ago. And what he realized, he has this great line in there. He says that he viewed every hour in the gym as one less day in the hospital at the end of his life. So you look at him now, he looks phenomenal shape and he's still working out at 90. So he took care of his health. He was a good father and good husband, very rare. He had fun. He built an incredible business and generated unbelievable amounts of wealth for him and his family. You don't get better than that. There is nothing better than that. And so there's been two other people that have followed a similar blueprint. One guy is this guy named Soul Price. I just did another episode on him. He lived a life very similar to this. He's the guy, everyone knows what Costco is. That idea came from this guy named Jim Sinegal. Jim Sinegal was, when he was like 17, was a mentor E of Soul Price. Jim Sinegal, the founder of Costco, writes the introduction to the biography of Soul Price, which is written by Soul Price's son after Soul passed away. And in that biography, Jim Sinegal talks about being interviewed. He's like, oh, you knew Soul Price for a long time. You must have learned a lot from him. He goes, no, I didn't learn a lot. I learned everything. Everything I learned was from him. That's 
something we talked about at dinner last night. There's a line in Port Charlie's Almanac that I wish I knew when I was 22. There's ideas worth billions in a $30 history book. Jim Sinegal's made multiple billions of dollars. The ideas came from Soul Price. That relationship is literally worth billions of dollars to the life of Jim Sinegal and his family and all the people around him that his wealth helps, right? But you get to the end of the last line in that book that is, again, written by his son after his father passed away. His name's Robert Price. Robert Price actually emailed me. My episode on Soul Price came out. He listened to it. And he's like, you did an excellent job. You honored our family. Thank you very much. That's incredible. Like, I didn't even know who he knew who I was. He ends. He goes, my father was the son of immigrants, right? They had escaped Jewish persecution in Europe. He built wonderful businesses. He was married for 70 years. He was a philanthropist. And he was a good father. It doesn't get better than that. It's unbelievably rare to be able to balance. So what we're talking about is the ability to balance all these other things and not myopically chase just your work life. And then we have Brunello Cuccinelli. Brunello Cuccinelli is probably 65 now. He's been, no, maybe older than that because he's been running Cuccinelli, Brunello Cuccinelli, his name of the company too, for 50, 45 years. And he's famous because he sets the entire work schedule in his company. I think they were from 8.30 to 5 every day. That's it. You're not allowed to talk about work after 5 o'clock emails, do anything. We're going to design within constraints. We have this workday. We're going to do the best of our ability within this workday, and we're not going to do anything else. And then he likes to read philosophy. He's a good father to his two daughters. He's still married to his wife. He takes care of his health. He goes on law works, walks. He produces his own olive oil. I did an episode on him. I get a handwritten note from him. And he's like, thank you very much. I get a copy of his book and then his own olive oil. I'm like, this is the most Italian shit I've ever seen. <laughs> this is incredible. Didn't he almost become a Catholic priest? He's very like religious. I think they converted one of the buildings that his company's in now used to be abandoned chapel or whatever. He'll like walk around with priests and he loves Will Duran, I think, and Plato. And this is what he likes to talk about. He likes to go to the cafe at night and sit with a bunch of older gentlemen and they discuss philosophy and they do what Italians do, eat little things or whatever, drink cappuccino. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's a rather large indictment of the fact that I've been doing this for seven years. I have 300 some examples and I can tell you three that didn't let ambition destroy everything around them. We hope it's a big theme for the semester. There's serial guests in class. Peter Kaufman, who runs a company called Glen Air. He's actually really good friends with Charlie Munger. I think he has lunch or dinner with him many times a week. I think some of the students here have had a chance to go meet him. And he often frames this as his one ladder framework. And as Rick and I thought about setting up Seder Grove and a lot of the things we learned in our previous role at Notre Dame, this idea of radically integrating all aspects of your life now and not trying to do them one after another, the famous try to make a lot of money and then maybe give it back later or hope that your family will actually talk to you someday while you're too busy. Peter's just been a great mentor and thought leader on this. He says the idea that one can go all in on career and then later reconcile it with life's other critical priorities is both popular and seductive. It has one major shortcoming. Who has ever successfully done it? And so for him, the seven aspects of the ladder, what he would say are the seven elements of a successful life, from reading all of history and thinking about philosophy, religion, are health, family, career, friends, spirituality, community, and hobbies. And he attempts to treat these as co-priorities. And as he's talked to us, I think he would say this is what leads to a successful life. And then from a competitive standpoint, he would also say, because no one else tries to do this, that if you're pretty good in all those areas, you actually have a chance to achieve all the worldly success that most people are trying to do when they're myopic in the way they go after a career. But just curious, David, if those resonate maybe with the three 
people you just outlined or others that might have gotten some of this right or a lot of it wrong? I think what all three of them share is they have actually wisdom. What makes a contented human has been known for thousands of years. We started the conversation with that quote, humans are writing down their best ideas for 5,000 years, just read them. You always hear, oh, this time is different. No, human nature has not changed. It has not changed in thousands of years. It's not going to change in several thousand years. And so what I think Ed Thorpe figured out, Cuccinelli figured out, and Sol Price figured out is just like, when I get to the end of my life, I like starting at the end and looking backwards. So another reason I was able to make this jump is I was reading a bunch of books on Jeff Bezos and everybody knows he started Amazon, but a lot of people don't know what he was doing right before he started Amazon. He was a 30-year-old. He's working at a hedge fund in New York City called D.E. Shaw and the founder, and he was good friends with the founder called David Shaw. And he was already wealthy, not like Amazon wealthy, but like he was fine. He was going to be successful no matter what. And he discovers that the internet's growing really fast because they're incubating a bunch of businesses inside of D.E. Shaw. And he just felt that he a fundamental once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to play a role in a life-altering industry of the internet. And his quarterly bonus was coming up, which is going to be really big. And he goes for a walk in Central Park with David Chalk. He's like, man, I think I'm going to quit. I think I'm going to move across the country. I think I'm going to sell books online. They also knew inside the idea for Amazon actually came inside of D. Shaw because it was codenamed the Everything Store. So they knew they'd start with books, but he knew he was going to sell a bunch of other things. But what was fascinating to me is how he made the decision because David Shaw was like, dude, I don't want this guy to leave. If your boss thinks you're talented, they don't want you playing for yourself or God forbid another team. It's like, oh, you should think about it, sleep on it. And so Jeff Bezos goes home and he calls this, so nerdy, what he named this, the regret minimization framework. He looked back, he envisioned himself on his deathbed in his 80s, surrounded by his loved ones, right? And he's like, what would that guy say to this version of him now, right? And he's like, when you're 80, your quarterly bonus when you're 30 years old is not important. It's important to you when you're 30. Wow, I'd like a couple hundred grand or whatever the number is going to be, right? That's amazing. But he goes, I knew my 80 year old version would not care about missing my quarterly bonus. What I knew he would care about is the fact that I had the opportunity to play a role in this once in a lifetime industry. And I was too scared to take a risk and to take a chance. And he says, once I thought about it from the 80 year old perspective, he was like, I didn't hesitate. I realized what's the worst case? I go and try to start an internet company, try to play a role in the formation of this brand new industry and I fail. I go get another job. That's fine. It seems scary, but it's really not scary because I have something else I can fall back on. And so then he made that decision, moved across the country and the rest is history. And so I think what Sol Price did, Ed Thorpe did, and Brunello Cuccinelli, even without saying so explicitly, is I know being really successful at work right now is going to feel great. I'm going to build wealth and maybe people like what I built or whatever, but they're not going to care when I'm 85. But my kids will care when I'm 85. And so the founder of IKEA started working at IKEA when he's 17, worked on it until he died in his 80s. And he has the best line about this, writing his autobiography only for the benefit of the future generation of entrepreneurs. And he goes, don't do what I did. I missed the childhoods of my three sons growing up so I could build Ikea, right? As anybody knows, childhood does not allow itself to be reconquered. Yes, it's great that you made affordable furniture. <laughs> it's great that you made billions of dollars. Your kids don't care about that. They were like, my dad wasn't at my baseball game. My dad never dropped me off at school. My dad wasn't here. He was selling furniture. Come on, man. I like Ikea just as much as the next person. Ikea is not worth, somebody else can build a furniture store. That's not worth the expense of your marriage. I think he got divorced. Most likely he got divorced. And then the relationship with the kids. And then a lot of them destroy their health. They just work all the time. They're not sleeping. They're not eating healthy. They're not working out. They're not doing anything else. And so there's a great book on this. I think it's episode 168. It's a guy named Larry Miller. The book is called Driven, an Autobiography by Larry Miller. Larry Miller was the richest. He just died recently, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. He was the richest entrepreneur in Utah. He owned 93 different businesses in Utah. He owned the Utah Jazz. He said the average... Utah citizen could not go a week without 
giving Larry Miller money. And all he did from the time his eyes opened to the time his eyes closed, he worked, did not take care of himself to the point where his health is so bad that he was like, if you Google image search Larry Miller, you'll see him in a, what is it, like motorized scooter wheelchairs on the floor at the Utah Jazz. He couldn't even move. Eventually, he's writing the book because he knows he's dying. They're chopping off parts of his body. Legit. There's no circulation in his legs because he didn't take care of himself. They're like chopping off his foot. There goes your fingers. He's a billionaire. Such a decomposing when he's alive. Then he doesn't even survive long enough to finish the book. So his co-author writes the last few chapters. And the worst indictment, and so Larry Miller says, my life is a cautionary tale. I have a 30,000 square foot house on a hill on a mountain in Utah. I own the Utah Jazz. Everything's so perfect. And he's like, don't do, don't be me. He's like, I didn't even have any fun in life. So when the money then? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so what happens is the author, the co-author is talking to his wife. The last chapter is the biggest indictment. And she's like, well, yeah, we miss him, but it's not like he was here when he was alive. I don't care that he had billions of dollars. He's a failure. That's a failure. When your wife and kids are like, I don't even know who he is. For what? A chain of car dealerships and movie theaters and basketball teams? You have one shot at life and that's what you did with it? Gardner has this line in The Road to Self-Renewal that's beautiful and haunting. He says, we build our own prisons and serve as our own jailkeepers. Makes me think of, there's a book, we'll track down the author, called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And those five, just list them really quickly. Number one is the courage to live a life true to self, not what others expected of me. Number two is I wish I hadn't worked so much. And I think a lot of that comes back to the major crisis in the world of just not enough people finding their life's work. Number three, courage to express my emotions. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in closer touch with my friends, family, and loved ones. And number five, I wish I would have allowed myself to be happier. Several of these really, what's so haunting about it is that these are basic things that are in many respects within our control. I feel like that theme continues to come up is what more can we try to do other than become that person that we're intended to be or that we're desiring to be? The reason I would say don't read business books and just memorize ideas, but tie the ideas to the life of the people is because something you'll realize in every single book is we're all imperfect human beings. There's a line that comes up over and over again in these books. I came across it for the first time in the biography of Francis Ford Coppola. And it says, you can always understand the story of the father by setting the son, that the story of the father is embedded in the son. And a lot of the stuff that drives us, this compulsive working behavior that you see in a lot of type A personalities, high achievers, because they're trying to fix something that was broken in their childhood. They either want to prove to their dad that they're better than them or don't want to wind up like their dad. Or, I'm telling you, it's in every single biography. And I think that's the important part. It doesn't matter if you don't remember anything I said. If you can only remember one thing, it's just read biographies and try to read biographies of dead people, by the way. And you realize it'll hit you on a more emotional, visceral level because you don't get to the end of the book, you got to the end of somebody's life. And you'll see how they're all going to talk about their childhood. They're going to talk about their relationship with their dad. They're going to talk about all this other stuff that influences what's happened. And so what I see is, Oh, going back to the Mike Tyson things. Oh, just me in funny clothes. When I say, hey, I have to be very careful. I could wind up like the Ikea guy. I know I could. I have to learn from these examples. I don't want to be. I'd much rather be the Cuccinelli's, the Thorpe's, and the Price's, even if my natural inclination is the Ikea guy, or I don't think I'd be Larry Miller, but that kind of thing. And so I think this acceptance of, hey, we're all imperfect human beings. You're going to try to get more in line with where you want to be, but you're never going to get to the, this end state of perfection. I guarantee you when Ed Thorpe goes to bed at night at 92 years old, there's still things in his life that he regrets that he did. You just have to get comfortable realizing that you're not ever going to attain perfection. And you give yourself the room. People are like, it's kind of weird that you study dead people for a living. And I'm like, it's actually comforting because I see people smarter and more driven than me making mistakes and being imperfect human beings and realizing, oh, okay, 
I don't have to beat myself up about this. I have to learn from my mistake and just try to do better next time. There is no such thing as a perfect life or a perfect human being. We're just all chasing that, but we're never going to get it. Do you mind coming back to this concept of service? Because I think, at least here, so many students grapple with what seems to be a tension of wanting to go out and achieve greatness and however you want to define that and commit themselves to a life of service to others, this kind of mission orientation. And all the time, I see those two things separated. You look at investing, there's sort of capitalism investing, and then there's ESG and impact investing and these nonprofit, more charitable spins on, on the act itself. And yet, so many of the stories that you uncover, I think, are surprising in the sense that these individuals who have built, as an output, tremendous fortunes, very large companies that have great societal impact have that orientation toward service, toward building something that's needed. I would throw that back at you. Who's ever achieved greatness without serving other people? That's why we think they're great. That's why I say focus on service. Some of this is just entertaining. We talked about this crazy drive that Kobe Bryant had. What is his service to other people? It's like the millions of people that watch him play basketball at the highest level possible. And we're inspired by his story. I don't think you achieve greatness in isolation. It has to be in the service of other people. Why are we still talking about Steve Jobs 10 years after he died? Why will we highly likely be talking about him 30 years after he died? And it's like he made devices that make our lives better. The iPhone is the culmination of everything, but he was doing that for decade after decade after decade. Anybody that you look or admire to, or you're going to read a book about, even some of the people like the robber barons, yeah, they did some atrocious things. Don't get me wrong, but like they also built the railway network and the steamship network and the transportation networks, and they made affordable refining of kerosene and got lighting in houses that couldn't afford it. The reason that people consider that what they did great is because they were able to serve other people and in many cases scale the business so that they increase the level. That is really, to me, the only reason. I think a lot of people think in larger business because you make more money, but I think they get it reversed. You're enlarging your business so you can serve more people. And since you serve more people, the byproduct of that is wealth. All of that greatness comes from the service of other people. Can you talk about just the business of podcasting without giving away your trade secrets? Why is this so special? We know why it aligns with your vision for life, what you're good at, what you're obsessed with. But we're on this new frontier of the ability to connect with anybody, anytime through audio. What is podcasting? Why is this so special? I said I wasn't going to talk about this anymore either. <laughs> you mentioned the word enthusiasts earlier. That's how I feel. I'm an evangelist for podcasting. I think there are absolute miracles. Again, it didn't exist when I was in your guys' age. By that point, you could stream radio on the internet, but you couldn't even listen on demand, right? But I had been obsessed with spoken word audio on the radio, AM station, since I was like a kid. Even when I didn't understand it, like politics, news, sports, advice columns, embarrassing stuff, right? Just because I was like, oh my God, I get to hear other people speak. This is amazing. And then I remember vividly, oh my God, now I don't have to be in the car. I can stream it on my computer. The internet speeds were so slow back then, it like buffer and everything. And then I remember the time where it's all the first podcast. Hey, don't worry if you miss it. You can listen to it on demand. I was like, what did you just say? And then from there, so from 2010, I discovered podcasts. And in 2016, I started my own. I listened to thousands of them. I was a podcast fiend and fanatic, and I still am to this day. Reason I would say is take away from the business aspect of it. I mean, obviously, they're highly leveraged, especially like miniature technology businesses that are infinitely leveraged. If one person listens or a million people listen, I do the same amount of work. So it's infinitely scalable. They have no expenses, 95% profit margins. But outside the business aspect of it, because I know a bunch of people that have built massive businesses off the back of podcasting. One of them is a billionaire. I was at dinner with him. 
And he pulled me to the side. He's like, I listened to your interviews. You keep going on about podcasting. He's like, will you please shut up? We don't want people to know how lucrative this is. We'd like to keep building these massive businesses in secret. So I'm just the most bullish person on the planet as far as podcasting as a miracle. I feel it's the printing press of the spoken word. But I also think you're going to see over the next coming decades that there'll be some of the best businesses in the world. But more important than all that, even if you never do it for a business, the reason I say anybody that has an interesting brain should have a podcast is because, listen, I love written material more than almost anybody alive. The relationship I have with somebody that I hear their audio for hundreds of hours is the same relationship that you have with like your best friend. I don't have the same relationship with my favorite authors because I don't hear them. I'm just reading their words and their thoughts. The, the one thing I would say is that there's the most special about podcasting is it's a technology that allows you to scale authenticity. You listen to my podcast, it's going to sound exactly what we just did here. And so what happens is it's a way to be authentic at scale. Then people can opt in. They listen. Some people are going to listen like, this is great. Some people are like, this sucks. The people that think it's great, over time, they start to build a parasocial relationship with you. And so before I ever knew you guys, you would listen to the podcast and then we get on the phone and it makes becoming friends so easy because you already know who I am. And then that doesn't even count for if two podcasters meet. So when Patrick comes in a few weeks, ask him about the first time we talked. I had been listening to Patrick's podcast for like 2019. He didn't even know who I was. Then he discovers me like a year and a half ago or something like that. Then he starts listening. Then another mutual friend puts us together. And then we talk for the first time on the phone. It's like that scene in Step Brothers. Did we just become best friends? Talk for like an hour and a half. Oh, we have the same interest. I've heard your podcast. I know exactly who you are. And so I don't even care about building the business of podcasts. It's if you feel you have a unique interest and a unique brain, the best way, in my opinion, to express that is through audio. And you don't even need a large audience for that to open up an insane amount of opportunities for you. The reason I'm up till 11 o'clock at night, the reason I wake up in the morning and I do all the weird stuff I do is because I'm not working. I legit think this is a miracle. It is unfair. One thing I do want to say before we close is I don't feel like I deserve to be here, right? And the reason I'm here is because, again, I get all these weird benefits because I put this podcast out and other people get value from it. But what I would say is I was in the pilot entrepreneurship program when I was in college. The last two years of college, it was the first entrepreneurship program at the school I was at. So 2004, 2006, right? It was a joke. I didn't learn anything in any of these classes for two years. It was useless. The one valuable thing I learned was there was an entrepreneur who just sold his company for 40 or $50 million. And he was donating $3 million to build a building at the school. And his one prerequisite for giving them that money and building that building was, I want a two-hour talk with the entrepreneurship students. In two hours... I learned more than I did in two years from that guy. Essentially, what Rick and Paul have done for you guys is they've curated. Essentially, you have that, but you have it for 15 weeks, 14 weeks. I don't include myself in this because every single other person coming after me is way more impressive than I am. And I mean that. All I would say is take advantage of that because that is the course that I wish I had instead of all this other stuff they made us do. What if you just did what Art of Investing was where like these guys have a world-class network and what happens is the people that achieve a lot in life when they get older, they all want to share what they learned. And so they have curated this incredible list of people for you. All I would say is, damn, you're going to learn a lot. Spending time with David and I think our mutual friend Patrick as well. This whole podcasting shtick is so disruptive and kitted around about founders being equivalent to a Harvard or Stanford MBA, but it really is true if you think about it. Let's close with one question that came from one of our students, which is just a little bit more practical. What advice would you have in terms of taking all of that information from biographies, from podcasts, and synthesizing them. Advice on note-taking or how you actually increase the volume of information that you listen to actually to accrue into knowledge. So the only piece of advice I have on that is anybody can figure out how to take notes. You guys can figure out how to read on your own. You're smart enough. You made it to Notre Dame. I couldn't have made it to Notre Dame. 
need to be very clear about that. So you're already way ahead of what I was. I think what the missing part is people don't reread and revisit and the importance of the sheer volume of repetition. We talked about earlier that humans have known this for thousands of years because you see it embedded in every single religion in the world. It's not, oh, read a book once. I've read some of these books. James Dyson, my number one book recommendation is episode 300, it's episode 200, it's episode 25. It's the same book. Every 100 episodes, I'm going to reread the book. So episode 400, I already know what it's going to be. It's going to be James Dyson's first autobiography against the odds. I will read that book probably 15 times throughout my life. It's the repetition. You can't pay attention to these apps, man. I'm telling you, you can't. We haven't even get into my desire to live in an analog world, which is kind of weird because a podcast is a technology business. It's a miracle technology. And I'm talking about how amazing it is. And yet all I want to read is physical books. And I want to have phone calls and in-person stuff. And I don't want to do any of this other stuff. But because all the apps are trying to do is put you in like these dopamine, it's the new, the new, the new, the new. And so what happens? You remain permanently superficial. That is the biggest slur. I would never want to be called permanently superficial. Stop going for this very wide but shallow. You can't be interested in the same stuff I'm interested in. There's a handful of people that you could tell that are my heroes. Steve Jobs, Charlie Munger, Edwin Land, David Ogilvie, Rockefeller. Well, you'll see that because I read over and over again. I keep talking about them. I've done 300 people, but I talk about the same 10 over and over again. So once you find your five, your 10, whatever you're interested in, go as deep as possible. Read every single thing you can about them. Reread your highlights, reread your notes, and then read all the people that inspired them. But it really is. Repetition is persuasive. It is the key to actual mastery and to learning. And all I see is everybody just jumping around. One of my favorite tweets I've ever read, and this was years ago before I even had a podcast, this guy was honoring his mentor that died. And he said the best advice that his mentor gave him, his mentor is probably four decades older than him. He goes, rabid-eyed kid, quit jumping, focus. Now every single generation, they're just full of rabid-eyed kids. They can't concentrate on anything. And so therefore, they're very easy to beat. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Amen. Well, we're going to leave it there. David, you are a force of nature and a total psychopath, but a good kind of psychopath. And we're grateful for your friendship and for your teaching today. Thanks so much for showing up to class today. For more Art of Investing episodes and to explore all of the resources we mentioned today and more, check out staygrovey.com. That's stay, G-R-O-V-E-Y.com. That's it for now, and we'll see you next week.